is due to the sinful and unrestrained lifestyle of his foreign wives who had no love and no appreciation for God or for biblical morality. The Baal, the Asherah worship introduced by Jezebel, they were sex cults involving prostitution and the like. Her willingness to have Naboth murdered to obtain his vineyard for her husband shows Jezebel's ruthless nature. She's the same wife who set out to kill Elijah, the prophet of God, because he opposed her wicked priests and religion. And Ahab, her husband, was just as wicked as her. So they were two peas in a pod. But what a heartache for Solomon to marry Sidonian women and many other foreign women, wives who had no time for Jehovah as they pressed Solomon to placate them with the construction of worship centers for their idols, and he was stupid enough to do it. All over Palestine, he built these worship centers for his wives' idols. One of the reformers was godly King Josiah. And one of his reforms was to desecrate the high places, I'm reading scripture, that were east of Jerusalem on the south of the hill of corruption, the ones Solomon, king of Israel, had built for Ashtaroth, the vile goddess of the Sidonians, for Chemosh, the vile god of Moabites, for Moloch, the detestable god of the people of Amnon, 2 Kings 26, verse 13. How did they all get built there? Solomon built those shrines. Because of his own disobedience, Solomon's wives perished in their sin. And he had to bear the hurt of his own involvement in their idolatry and his inability to win them over to the worship of the true, the one and only God and Savior of men. His compromise was deadly. And I think the hurt of such was unfathomable. And that is why Paul exhorts Christian singles, Christian singles, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? 2 Corinthians 6 verse 14. But he also acknowledges that God sometimes saves one believing spouse and not the other. We call those mixed marriages. Let me read it for you. To the rest I say this, I not the Lord, if, my, if any brother has a wife who's not a believer and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who's not a believer and he's willing to live with her, she must not divorce, divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife. And the unbelieving wife has been sanctified or made holy through her believing husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. Set apart, sanctified. 1 Corinthians 7, 12 and following. And so long as the marriage is held intact, there is the godly influence of a believing spouse, be it husband or wife. 
And there's the hope of God. That one day they will be made one in spirit as well as one in body. And I've seen that in ministry. Where these mixed marriages, the unbelieving spouse, God saved them and made them like this in spirit as well as body. Then thirdly, there is the pain of unbelieving children or grandchildren. Moms and dads alike are burdened with the pain of a rebellious son or daughter who spurns their parental leadership towards godly things and chooses instead the allurement and the lust of the world's idolatry. In our day, it's the allure of iPads and MP3 players and movies and games and sex and riotous living. In King David's day, it was lust for money, lust for gold, prestige, recognition, power. Yes, sex too. And even the king's crown. Absalom, David's son, fell victim to all of these things. His lust for prestige and recognition is demonstrated in the fact, and then I'm reading scripture here from 2 Samuel 15. He would get up early, get this now, he would get up early in the morning and stand by the side of the road leading to the city gate. And whenever anyone came with a complaint to be placed before the king, that would be his father, for a decision... Absalom would call out to him, "Um, what town are you from? And he would answer, well, your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. That would be the northern tribes. And then Absalom would say to him, look, um, your claims are valid and proper, uh, but there's no representative of the king to hear you. And Absalom would add, if only I were appointed judge in the land. Then everyone who has a complaint or a case could come to me and I would see that he receives justice. What's going on? While he is saying in no uncertain terms that David, his father, would not dispense justice, but he would. Also, we read on, wherever anyone approached him to bow down before him, Absalom would reach out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. And Absalom behaved in this way towards all of the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice. And so and so he stole the hearts of the men of Israel. 2 Samuel 15, verses 2 through 6. This is David's son doing this. Now he didn't care that the people got justice in the king's court. He simply wanted to shift the loyalty of subjects from David to himself. And you know it worked. And it worked because the gullible people bought into the deception and Absalom was soon in a position to rival David for his throne. 
David and his palace guard were forced to flee Jerusalem and then to add insult to injury, Ahithophel, David's longtime advisor, advised Absalom, listen to this advice, go lie with your father's concubines whom he left to take care of the palace and then all Israel will hear that you have made yourself an offense to your father's nostrils and the hands of everyone with you will be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof and he lay with his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. 2 Samuel 16. It can be said of Absalom what God concluded about Esau, whom we noted last week. He married pagan women despite his father, you remember. And the scripture says in Hebrews 12, verse 16, See that no one is sexually immoral or is, or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. The grief of David expressed in our text towards Absalom was this. Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. That grief was obviously sparked by the news that Absalom had been killed in battle. But there's something more here. David knew that Absalom died not only as a rebel against the Lord's anointed, himself as king, but as a rebel against God. Absalom's history was one of defiance against the written law of God in many, many areas. He orchestrated the murder of his own brother, Amnon, for defiling his sister Tamar. He fled and aligned himself with the Philistines of all people, the avowed enemies of Israel. Upon his return to Jerusalem, Absalom spent four years wooing the allegiance of the people to consider him a better judge of matters than King David. And then next, he requested David to send him to Ebron so he could fulfill an alleged vow of thanksgiving to God when in reality he used Hebron as a rallying point for all Israel to declare him king. And David had to flee Jerusalem. These are all signs of a wicked, godless man whose only ambition was to promote himself while dethroning his own father. David's grief at Absalom's death and his willingness to have died in his place is reminiscent of Paul's love for his people when he said, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race. Hebrews 9, verse 2 and 3. There is great pain of heart when parents contemplate that eternity may find them deprived of a son or daughter or a grandchild who became 
stubborn and rebellious to the gospel. And they know that they're lost forever from sight and sound and memory of God's grace, spurned and rejected. I would say if David did not love Absalom so, he would not have grieved so inconsolably. The young people here this morning, if Christian parents did not love you, their children, their grief would be lightened as well. But parents cannot make you believe. They cannot convince you of your need. All they can do is pray that God will open your eyes and open your hearts to see Jesus as Savior. And you can be sure mom and dads pray for you in that way. Now that brings us secondly then to the biblical remedies for your pain over the spiritually lost in your family. Number one, parents with an unbelieving child. What about that? We look at poor David weeping uncontrollably over twice dead Absalom, dead physically as the victim of war, but also dead spiritually as one who opposed God's anointed king, David himself, who was prophet, priest, and king. And in so doing, they opposed God himself. What could David have done to avoid this? It's a good question. Could such rebellion have been stifled, defused, redirected in the form of loyalty to God and loyalty to the king? Most do not recall that David had another son, and his name was Adonijah who, similar to Absalom, attempted a coup of David against David in his old age. Tacking, tacking dad when he's old, when dad will be more vulnerable and can't do much about it. The writer of Kings tells how that could possibly happen. His father, that would be David, had never interfered with him by asking, why do you behave the way that you do? He was also very handsome and was born next after Absalom. 1 Kings 1, verse 6. What is the scripture saying? It's saying that Absalom and Adonijah, brothers born back to back, though not twins, they shared a rebel heart against God and King David. What went wrong? Well, here's what went wrong. David could not bring himself to discipline these boys while they were boys. So when they became men, they just did what they wanted with no restraint. They turned out bad, and David's parental failures contributed to that. This is why so much of the Proverbs, written by another one of David's sons, namely Solomon, have so much to say about using the rod and reproof 
the two things together, to drive the folly out of our sinful children. And by folly, we don't mean silly. But we mean sinfulness. We have this from Paul in the New Testament too. Fathers, don't exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in training and instruction in the Lord. Ephesians 6 verse 4. This involves not only corporal punishment for sin, but instruction in righteousness in the things of God. Exposure to the gospel as often as the doors of the church are open and God's word is being preached. See, you never know when the Holy Spirit will fall on a dead soul and bring them to spiritual life. But you can be sure that it will not happen in a vacuum. It will not happen if Sunday becomes play day instead of worship day. It will not happen if you keep looking the other way and let the sin of your youth go unchallenged as David did time and time again. His brand of love was a love of self. I mean, he couldn't bring himself the temporal pain of disciplining his children for the good of their souls. I gotta say it this way, it, it hurt him to spank his kids. But Solomon writes, do not withhold discipline from a child. If you punish him with a rod, he will not die. <laughs> punish him with a rod and he will, you will, you will rather save his soul from death. Who would think that temporal punishment